HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. This year is Heritage Radio Network's 10th anniversary. Please join us for a spectacular gala coming up on November 11th at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, www.heritageradionetwork.org gala. It's going to be awesome. I'm making food. Other hosts are making food. There's going to be chefs. There's going to be cheese. There's going to be booze. There's going to be wine. There's going to be music. Uh, so yeah, you should come on out and have a party with us. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. Today's theme. Did you hear about the chef that makes his own salt? I know what you're thinking. Another chef who does things by hand that the Industrial Revolution was supposed to save us from. What's next, a chef who carries his own water from the well? I know it may seem like a cliché, but I have to say I love the idea of making your own salt. Or more accurately, harvesting it. It's not that hard to do. In his River Cottage family cookbook, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall includes a recipe for it. You harvest some good clean water from the ocean, and you just boil off the water. I mean, how did you think salt was made? There are so many things that when you do them yourself, they just taste better. I canned some tomatoes over the weekend. I also made some applesauce. It just tastes better. Maybe it's the quality of the ingredients. Maybe it's the blood, sweat, and tears. Maybe it's the fewer miles on the truck or the music I was listening to. All of this combines to make the food you handle, and especially the food that's almost always made industrially, just that much better. Last week, I crossed the Hudson River to Hoboken, New Jersey, to sit down with Chef Seedon Schaus of Halifax Restaurant. We talked about salt, which he makes himself, about seaweed, about mushrooms, and a whole lot more. So tune in. Give it a listen. 
would you just introduce yourself and tell me like what you what you do now? Like when you sit down next to somebody on an airplane, uh, and they say, "Hey, who are you? What do you say?" Uh, well, I'm a chef, so I'm a and uh, at Halifax Restaurant, and uh, as well as a chef partner in Timber Cove uh, Resort, uh, which is in uh, Jenner, uh, California. It's beautiful out there. It is. I just got back end of last week. Nice. Yeah. It's a good time. Good time of year out there. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's, I like it because it's it's not. I mean, it's never hot there on the coast. Right. Ever. But this time of year, it's windy, but it's usually pretty sunny. Yeah. Uh, and then the winter gets kind of windy, but then pretty rainy um, as well. So this is a perfect time. Yeah. So when you say got back, you, you, we're we're sitting right now in Halifax, which is your restaurant at the W Hotel in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yes. Right. Yes. And how long has it been open? Three and a half years. Yeah. Halifax has been open three and a half years. Uh, before that, it was a different restaurant, but yep. now. And it's named Halifax because you're from Nova Scotia. Correct. Yes, I was born born in Nova Scotia on the South Shore. Uh, Halifax is two hours north of where I where I was born. Yeah. Uh, and the restaurant's not necessarily named Halifax for me. That's a, that's one of it, yeah. part of it. But it's named uh, mostly because it's a coastal Halifax is a coastal coastal city, yeah. um, and that's kind of what we wanted Halifax to be is kind of more coastal cuisine, um, kind of uh, northeastern farm and coastal is what we're considering. So I was looking up, you grew up in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Yes. And I was looking at the map, and I realized I've actually been there. In the summer of 1993, I did a bicycle trip, like an outdoors trip, in yeah. Nova Scotia. And <laughs> we, we did a whole bunch of different stuff, but part of it was bicycling. And we bicycled kind of across the middle of Nova Scotia, where there's a big national park. Okay. Um, and we ended up in Liverpool. Wow. <laughs> Or in that Very area. Very interesting. <laughs> I actually might have done the same bicycle, not at the same time, yeah. uh, but I biked, as a fundraiser for a friend of mine's father, we did a, did a bike across from, um, from Liverpool to uh, Digby, Nova Scotia, sure. so in, the, in the valley. Yeah. And uh, that was, so it would have been probably mostly yeah. the same roads. Right, the same roads, yeah. that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so you lived there until how long? Until 99. Okay. Uh, so I lived there until, until I was 15. Okay. Uh, and then moved to Virginia. Right. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about, like, how did Nova Scotia shape what you do now, and then Virginia? Like, that's a pretty, you know, were you near the ocean in Virginia? No, no, central in the mountains. So that's pretty stark difference. Very, very big difference. <laughs> a little shocker from a little Nova Scotia kid to yeah. move to Virginia. Uh, so, I mean, Nova Scotia more shaped me in my career the past four years since I'd more than, than in the past, and I think that was because before... I was working at other restaurants, French restaurants, Italian restaurants, uh, mostly, actually solely French and Italian, and it was all about their cuisine. It wasn't really about my cuisine or kind of my upbringing. So that was kind of where my, my kind of career was taking me, was in those kind of um, directions until, until I had the opportunity for, for Halifax, and that's kind of when I got to do my own kind of cuisine um, and, and based off of my, my upbringing. Are there dishes on the menu that are like remind you of your childhood? Quite a bit, yes, yes. More, more so, not fully dishes, but ingredients. Got um, so, one of the one one item, the uh, maple smoked salmon, yep. uh, was a childhood favorite in Nova Scotia. Picking it up at the at the grocery store, it's made made in the fish department. You have fresh sure. fish and you have the smoked <laughs> fish, and the maple salmon was one of my favorites. Kind of nice. like it's candy. It's almost like it's like maple candy. Sorry, salmon candy. Um, so that was one of my favorites, and that was. One that I never thought to, to kind of even try until we were discussing opening Halifax and thought, okay, that's something that I loved. Let me see if I can figure out how to do it. And, and now it's one of my favorite dishes. So that's awesome. That's 100% childhood right there. Um, and you do a lot of cured meat 
as yes. well yourself in the restaurant. Yes, cured meats, yeah. cured meats, and then smoked fish. Yep, yeah. awesome. Um, you have an interesting relationship with salt. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> tell me about your uh, tell me about your salt. Salts, yeah. So uh, another another item kind of developed with with the opening of Halifax is that I kind of wanted something to be different. I want to be different and and. The, the idea I had was if I can do it myself, why not? So, sure. Uh, my wife and I. Hence the cured meats. Correct, <laughs> right. exactly. Uh, and my wife and I enjoy driving out to Montauk um, to basically, as more so for just kind of a foraging trip, is where it started. Uh, sure. Seaweed, seaweed. We'd pick mussels for ourselves, not for the restaurant. Um, and uh, every now and then you find an oyster, um, but periwinkles. Uh, and then it got to a point where it was, like, it was a beautiful area where we'd go to um, near the lighthouse and like, very secluded. We'd usually build a fire on the, on the rocks and uh, cook, cook, cook right there on the rocks and thought, why not? I try making sea salt. So brought a couple of buckets of, of, actually went to Home Depot uh, and got a couple of buckets of water, <laughs> bu- couple of buckets and got some water and brought it back and kind yeah. of figured it out. Um, so we've been making sea salt ever since. That's awesome. Four years now. And how do you use it? Do you use it in most of the dishes? Is it no, for not customers most of to use finished, for finishing? It's is a it? finishing salt in the kitchen. Um, so as far as for customers to use, I would love to, uh, but it's natural sea salt has a little higher moisture content. Sure. So it's, it does, it kind of clumps up uh, in a shaker. Uh, so people, certain customers, especially some of our regulars, will ask for it, uh, and we'll give them a little dish on the side. Uh, but we finished finished all, all the steaks uh, with the sea salt and, and a couple other dishes. Nice. And how do you find that, like for you from a from a culinary standpoint, what does that do for the steak? Like, let's say you just finished it with, I don't know, whatever salt was in the kitchen, you know, kosher salt, let's say, right. versus the sea salt. So really, I mean, I would love to say that it makes it so much more amazing. Um, but really, I, I don't think on a steak you're going to notice the difference sure. other than possibly the texture. So right. I, I try to do as much as I can of getting the fleur de sel off the top so when, when it's kind of reducing it's skimming off the top and it's this beautiful kind of flaky um, salt uh, so that I try to use the most and that has a great texture because it's not too not too firm um, but kind of larger thin thin kind of flakes uh, whereas the, the, the salt that goes to the bottom is more kind of fine uh, so it doesn't have as, as much texture Got it. so it's, it's, it's more of a texture thing I would say than comparing it to and like what's your salt. yield like how much salt do you average yield out of a 5 gallon Home Depot bucket so out of I do usually do 20 gallons I do 4 or 5 gallon buckets and I get about 15 cups of salt okay wow that's actually so a lot a, more than I would is. have expected it is and, and when you're making it and you see the yield, you're like, oh, that doesn't look like it very much when it's kind of spread out, drying. Sure. And then when it kind of put it in containers, it's kind of gross. <laughs> so how uh, how much do you, like how often do you have to go out and bring back buckets of water? It's three to four times a year. Oh, that's not it. so bad. Yeah, yeah um, and it, it's more so. I, I try to only do it in the winter, in the in the colder months, um, more more so because of the bacterial content in the water. Sure. Um, just just just. We, in the beginning, we got it tested uh, from the lab in upstate New York just to make sure. Yeah, of course. I didn't think there would be a problem, but yeah. you don't want to be serving guests yeah. <laughs> something you're not sure of. Um, yeah. And they pretty much said this, unless there was a physical contaminant in the water, oil spill, basically, you're, you're, you're not going to have a problem with the, with the salt um, because of the salt kills a lot of bacteria anyway. So. Sure. So we're, uh, yeah, four, f- three to four times a year. You usually go fall, uh, fall, winter, spring a couple times. Yeah. Um, do you ever bring in any ingredients from Nova Scotia? I do. Uh, a lot of seaweeds. Um, just actually did a dinner last night, or a, a fundraising dinner last night in uh, West Orange, New Jersey, uh, for the American Cancer Society. And for that, I did a seaweed focaccia, and then mm-hmm. a seaweed salad on top. So all the seaweed came from Nova Scotia. Cool. I have a forager uh, in Nova Scotia who 
who he forges many items, but only items I can get from him are dried items because the ship time from him is a little, little long. Yeah. Um, so I get uh, winter nori, uh, sugar, sugar kelp, um, wakame, uh, uh, oyster thief, which is a really awesome seaweed. Huh. Um, it's just like these long strands, really kind of almost like a fish seaweed kind of taste, but not fishy, um, super unique, strong taste. Um, so I get many, many kind of seaweeds from him. Growing up, did you eat seaweed? Growing up, did not eat seaweed. No, now <laughs> I think of it. Uh, although in Nova Scotia cuisine, dulse is a big sure. is a big one. I get dulse yeah. from him as well. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a dish called dulse pie in Nova Scotia, which is pretty terrible. But uh, what just, is it? It's dulse, basically. It's the seaweed, and dulse is very kind of iodiney, really yeah, strong sure. taste. Um, we actually use it here at the restaurant. Uh, smoke it, we smoke it, and put it on the popcorn. Yep. Um, that we give guests at the beginning of service, but a little bit we put a little bit. Uh, it's kind of quite a strong uh, seaweed. But no, I, I think as a kid we didn't. Um, we didn't. This this weekend actually, I'm going to be in Nova Scotia. Oh, nice! And uh, the, for, the forager uh, who I haven't met yet, kind of through online, um, that, that I use is taking my whole family foraging. So, oh, that's exciting! A great, great day on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, you and I share a passion for uh, for foraging. Um, yes. You know, uh, I've been spending a lot of time in Rhode Island. Been doing some great, great foraging up there. Uh, mostly mushrooms. My wife is into a lot of more medicinal plant. Okay. Uh, foraging and that kind of thing. I've done actually very little, even though it's right on the ocean. I've done very little in the ocean, although I'm looking forward to doing a little bit more of that. How did you get into foraging? Uh, I would say mostly my wife. Uh, my wife is from Eastern Europe, from Estonia, and uh, the first time, first time I, I went there to visit her family, uh, we went foraging and for mushrooms. And uh, they, they grew up. My wife grew up foraging for mushrooms since she could walk. Uh, it's huh. a picture of her that's. You can't even see her face. She's holding a platter of porcinis. There's so, so many porcinis, you can't even see her face. So um, they basically kind of trained me or kind of taught me how to kind of forage and what to look for. And from then it grew. Then I was I, then I was hooked. I was already a chef at the time, and kind of there's nothing best better than kind of pick, getting your own ingredients for, for cooking. So yeah, I mean it, it's there, there's something about it, and I, it's so interesting. I mean I you know having grown up in the United States, I feel like in Eastern Europe especially is where I meet people who just grew up with it. Yeah. Right, for the most part, like it's just part of the culture there. People do it, and you just grow up learning, right? You go up in the same way that we learn that a tomato is an edible, you know, red thing that grows on a plant, and there are other, you know, edible berries, like there are other edible berries and non edible berries. People grow up looking at mushrooms. And in this country, I feel like, or in, the, in, in this part of the world, up into Canada as well, people grow up thinking mushrooms are poisonous Correct. if they don't yeah. come from the supermarket. Right. And I feel like people are missing out on such an incredible world of flavor and texture and just the enjoyment of it. I mean, you're walking through the woods, and I, feel, I always feel like it's like winning the lottery. Like, if you're walking through woods you've never been in before, a couple weeks ago I'm walking through the woods, and there's a beautiful chicken of the woods specimen mm-hmm. right there on a log, and it's like winning the lottery. Oh, yes. Oh, it's, a, it's a super <laughs> excitement. It's kind of, you get zoned in, and you're just kind of like... Focused on focused on looking, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And do you have a particular mushroom that is like you know in your that, that's like your favorite one to find? Porcini's. 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 Yeah, yeah. Porcini's for sure. Uh, they're in Eastern Europe. They're the prize mushroom. Yeah. Um, and so they're kind of that's where I was taught is kind of the the prize thing. I love chanterelles. It's one of my, one of my favorites. Um, and uh, they're not as prized there. They, they they pick them, but they're they're not they're more common, um, so to so mm. to speak. Uh, we just were a month ago in, in Colorado. And had an amazing harvest in Colorado. I brought back a whole ton of fresh and dried. We dried some when we were there. Porcinis and hawks, hawks wings were just super plentiful there. Uh, almost too plentiful. 
it was actually, but um, yeah, it's great. I'm looking forward to Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, doing some. The Should property that I grew up on supposedly is one of the best areas for chanterelles, and we had a large area that I could have been when I was younger, but right. didn't even know it. Yeah, and, and it's amazing how you find out about these things. I've yeah. got into mushroom foraging through some friends, and, and you know, and through the you know through meeting people who were doing it, and also just loving the outdoors. I do a lot of hiking, and it's from being out there and kind of starting to be like, well, what is that, right? And, you know, let me learn more about it. And at some point, uh, about a year or two in, I went to the house where I grew up, and I went to my father's house, which is up in up in Westchester County, New York. And you know, big lawn, a couple of like you know, there's a dozen hundred plus foot tall oak trees, and it was in the fall, and they're beautiful hen of the woods at the base of the trees and I, my jaw hit the floor and I went and I picked them they were the size of milk crates and they were perfect and my father said oh those those, those have been growing there for years I thought they were poisonous and you know I just I never knew to look right, right? it was completely off my of radar course. and here my entire I lived in that house till I was 15 and here all those 15 years I could have been enjoying those Correct. wonderful mushrooms yeah, yeah it, is, it is great it is interesting <laughs> so what about Virginia so in Virginia you weren't near the ocean was definitely not near the ocean. It was in the mountains, yep. um, on the edge of the Appalachian Mountains in, in Lynchburg. And that's where I finished high school, and that's where I started cooking. So that's where I, I was working at a restaurant uh, as a dishwasher just for a job in high school. And uh, the, sh- the chef had a good relationship with the chef, and the chef offered, would you like to start making salads? I'll give you a small raise if you want to make salads. And I was like, sure, raise sounds good to me. Yeah. Salad sounds easy. Let's, <laughs> let me do it. And uh, so that, that kind of went on for, I worked there for three years, and it was probably the first two years that I really didn't even think about it any further than just it being a job. Um, and uh, then it was a trip actually back to Nova Scotia. Uh, I, think it, I think it was at Christmas time, one, one holiday. Flew back to visit, visit my mother and, and stepfather and talking to my stepfather in the airport, uh, he, he basically said, if you love, you love cooking right now, why don't you pursue that? I was talking, we were talking about colleges and yeah. what was going to happen. And, and um, I was originally going to go to aeronautical engineering school was the plan. That's when I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to love being a pilot, but right. I do love cooking now. So he said, why don't you try that out? You can always be a pilot afterwards. And uh, so that's when I kind of decided to go to culinary school was after that. Cool. So that just led down, down this road? Exactly. Yeah, I cooked for three years at the first restaurant and then, then, then went to culinary school and been cooking ever since. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so you sort of split your time then between Hoboken and out in Jenner, California? Correct. I'm about 75% in, in Hoboken and 25% in, in, in California. I uh, go, go minim, minimum one, one week a year. Uh, sorry, one week a month. Yeah. Uh, there. Is there anybody else on the team? Like, are the restaurants related in any other way, or are you just the only way they're connected? So they are. So the, uh, they're related in that same, same main owner. Uh, same Got owner it. owns here as he does Timber Cove. Um, and uh, he, we're using kind of Halifax as a almost, so to speak, a training ground for, for California. It's a little harder to get staff there. Sure. It's quite remote. Um, it's on the Sonoma Coast, so yep. uh, it's not near. It's an hour and a half from the closest kind of city. Uh, right. So it's... Uh, it must be a great opportunity, though, for people who you find who are interested in it. Oh, for right? sure. I mean, if you train them here, and then they get to go live in Jenner. Exactly. So <laughs> the, the chef the chef now at, at, at Timber Cove, he was my sous chef here uh, up until uh, six, eight months ago. Uh, one of our dining room managers here is now an assistant uh, dining room manager there. Uh, so we're kind of kind of tra- trading staff, uh, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. And then, how's the menu different from Halifax? Quite different menu, but a similar concept. So, so Halifax is is northeastern farm and coastal. Well, uh, Timber Cove is Pacific farm and coastal. Sure. So it's it's kind of different different items, but kind of treated the same way. Treated yeah. simply, focused on the ingredients and the season.
This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Numwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Are there any dishes that you wish you could have on the menu that like just don't work out because of supply chains? Like I'm always interested to understand, you know, I mean, obviously there's been such a great movement in the last 10, 15 years towards working with farms, but of course you as the chef are dreaming up things that you might want to do and then suddenly supply might evaporate. Sure. So, uh, let me think. Uh, Digby scallops is one of them uh, Nova Sc- on, the, on the Digby shore in Nova Scotia. Some of the best, sweetest scallops uh, kind of ever had. Part of it could be growing up in nostalgia, but yeah, sure. I haven't had them in quite a few years. <laughs> uh, but I've tried, I've tried to get those. Even with Nova Scotia halibut is really big in this area. Uh, my main fish fish vendor brings in Nova Scotia halibut direct direct from the fishermen in Nova Scotia. So can you ask him to put on five pounds of Digby scallops every week, and I'll, I'll, I'll buy them and. Some reason we can't get them, so huh. I've been, been trying, uh, been trying to get those because I think it'd be something very unique to this area yeah. that uh, people aren't used to. Yeah, I mean, most of the scallops, as I understand it, around here, at least the sort of, you know sort of the bigger ones are coming off the Jersey coast, but the water in, in Nova Scotia has got to be different. Be so the, the, dig, the, dig, the Digby area, which is which is in the Bay of Fundy, is the largest tidal bore in, in the in the world. Mm. Um, so it drops. Can't even say how many feet, 50 feet, I right, think, in, sure. in a few hours. So there's large, large currents, and there's lots of uh, minerals and, and, and food in the water there. So the scallops, I find the Digby scallops uh, comparable to a bay scallop here, like, uh, a, like a Peconic Bay, yeah. but they're three times the size. <laughs> sure. So they're, they're not, they're, they're, lar- they're larger, much larger than a bay scallop, not quite as large as kind of a, a, a diver scallop, yep. um, but it's uh, kind of a unique, sweet scallop that's a lot larger, so that's kind of why they're unique. Um, yeah, when I was a kid, we spent a lot of time in Maine, and back in the 80s and early 90s, you could get these wonderful, small, sweet shrimp. Yes, there um, is. And I assume you probably had them in Nova Scotia as well, yes. and at least in Maine, that fishery's been closed now for six, seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, just the populations are too small. Yes, and it was also very short. short. I remember yeah. when they were available, it was like one month of the year, right. a few weeks you could get them. Yep. Um, and, and now, yes. For sure. 
Um, so when you are out on the on the West Coast, what sort of products are you working with out there? I assume there's a lot of great dairy in that area. Yeah, the cheese, the cheeses are phenomenal yeah. in the Sonoma, Sonoma area. Um, just trying to get actually into the restaurant now, um, expired dairy cattle meat. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, which is kind of a larger movement that's kind of been happening in the past few years. Yeah. Um, and there's just so many dairy cattle there uh, that, that they're not really using the meat as much. So we're, sure. trying to, we're working on that, trying to source that at the moment. Um, I think it's a company called Mindful Meats, mm. uh, which I was able to get here a couple weeks ago and then not able to get that supply oh. here anymore. It's coming, <laughs> coming from there. So we're working on that, that over there. But as far as seafood, uh, Dungeness crab season is incredible right there. Uh, they're caught Bodega Bay, which is 45 minutes from, from Timber Cove. is kind of a, one of the hubs of where, where they come in. Uh, the Pacific Rockfish, phenomenal, right in front of Timber Cove. Uh, on weekends, this is full of kayaks and people, ca- kayakers, fishing for, uh, for rockfish. And they're, they're caught right there, um, right in the front. So we use, we use the rockfish. Got it. Um, and right, right now, the California King salmon season is, is beautiful. Getting ready to come to an end here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. But, uh, it's uh, right now. That's kind of the main the main items we're using. So both of your restaurants are in hotel properties. Correct. Does that mean? I mean, so it seems to me, at least from looking at the Halifax site, like you guys are running an insane number of hours, right? You're open from six thirty in the morning, and what time do you finish service at night? Weekdays. Uh, weekdays at ten o'clock and eleven o'clock on the weekends. Yeah. I mean, that's a long. It that's is. A, that's a lot of a lot is. of time for the kitchen to be running. I, I've said a few a few uh, jobs ago. I've said I wouldn't work, wouldn't work on a hotel again <laughs> because because of that because it's just kind of extra it's, it's tough enough having the stresses of being a chef and then having those extra hours um, but there, there's benefits as well uh, there's benefits you've got more and more kind of a large larger kitchen I mean we yeah. have in hotels usually have a larger kitchen so you have more room sure. more staff to be able to work on kind of new, new projects yep. uh, and new items um, well and, and then I imagine it's also very interesting from the customer standpoint because you have people who are staying in the hotel who are coming here because it's the restaurant in the hotel but then especially being where we are in, in relationship to New York City and in, in New Jersey, people are coming here for dinner because it's a great restaurant as Correct. well, right? It's Correct. not just the people who are staying in the hotel. So I think to me that I would imagine that adds kind of an interesting mix of customer base. That's that's correct here at Halifax, you're 100%. Yeah. Uh, Timber Cove is quite different sure. um, because there you're kind of stuck. You're staying right. there. There's not, the closest <laughs> other restaurant is 30 minutes away. Right. Um, the roads there are beautiful, but not to drive at night. Um, so no. most, of the, most people staying at Timber Cove We'll come in. We'll come in for dinner uh, every night that they're there. Yeah. Um, breakfast and lunch. Sometimes they go elsewhere during the day. They'll, sure. they'll go on day trips, but mostly for dinner, we have a captive audience there. Which, yeah. I, which I mean, I imagine also is kind of neat, right? Because everybody's kind of there together, right? Everyone's sure. kind of like stuck in together. Exactly. And it's a it's a relatively old property. Is that right? That it is. Was re, you guys have sort of it's been reopened. Right. Correct. We we, we took over uh, four years ago. Um, or the owner took over four years ago and and, and re- renovated the property, trying to keep it kind of in the, the natural original look as possible but kind of bring it a little more upscale um, but it is I think it was built in the 50s as yeah. familiar, yes. God, I can't even imagine driving those roads in like the 50s Man. Yeah, I can't sometimes <laughs> I can't imagine how we do it now um, oh for sure it's, uh, yeah, I have a right. friend who who used to live in San Francisco and lives in Bolinas now mm-hmm. and God, that drive over Mount Tam to get out to his place I mean I've done that drive at night in the fog and I <laughs> like I have a pretty strong stomach but that's like like the worst roller coaster ride yes yes <laughs> For sure. Um, who are the suppliers that you're working with in the New York area? Um, I saw Fossil Farms commented on one of your Instagram posts. Yes, yeah, so Fossil Farms is a great, great partner. Um, we actually have a half hog coming from them tomorrow. Cool. So we get uh, we get a lot of our uh, meats through them. So we're getting we're getting a, uh, our la- ground lamb through them. We're getting uh, 
half hog, which is raised on their farm um, in Boontown, yep. right outside of Boontown, yep. New Jersey. Um, so they're 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 wonderful. Uh, get bison, get bison from them as well. Um, they raise they raise bison, they raise ostrich, emu, um, hogs, all, all on their all on their farm uh, close by. But most of our pork products are coming from them. Cool. Do you get to do any uh, experimenting with I guess what I would call like odd products on your own? Like, I'm thinking, like, you know, since you have a relationship with, like, Forager, do you ever get people that have hunted, like, bear, and you get opportunity to work with anything like that? Uh, not in a restaurant, obviously, because you can't sell that stuff. Right. So, so not any really hunters uh, do I kind of work with, um, but some odd odd items, kind of foraged items that uh, my local forager here in New Jersey um, will kind of uh, send me. As one is a shrimp, they call I think it's... Something etaloma, so it's uh, a shrimp, shrimp of the woods. Is I've never, I've never found them. those as a forager, uh, but I definitely they're on my sort of on. They're my very radar, interesting. Yeah. So he basically texts me, "Hey, I've got a pound of these. I'll throw on your order for you to try out." Um, same thing with my forager in Nova Scotia. He, my first was working with him. A lot of the items that he would listed, I was like, I don't even know what that is, as far as <laughs> wild, wild foraged yeah. kind of berries and and, yeah. and, and and different different items, different herbs, and um, so for example, the oyster thief. He sent sent me that as a sample, and it was incredible. So now now I'm ordering that from him. Um, I get my local local fish company, Local 130, is my main local fish company. Uh, they're based in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and they only kind of deal with local local fish. Um, so I can't necessarily get everything from them, depending on depending on what I need for for, for parties. But it's uh, one item that I got was interesting from them. He had a whole bunch of tuna hearts. Uh, I never worked with tuna wow. hearts before, so I said, you know what? Let me try curing them. I'm going to think of like something like batarga. Yeah. Um, so actually, they're they're almost ready. Uh, so they've been, they've been cured. And now they're drying out. Oh, very um, cool. To kind of, that might be terrible. That might, might be amazing. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. So then, items yeah. like that, like how do you fit those into the menu? Because you're you know you're running a restaurant that's open from six thirty in the morning, for you know serving people who might be business travelers or might be on vacation, staying here all the way to your nighttime business, serving more people that might be coming out for an anniversary dinner or something like that, or just going out to dinner who live in the neighborhood. Where does something like the tuna heart? Fit. Does it become a special? Does it become something that you send out just to regulars? Like, how does it work? It, it depends on what it is and how much I have. Sure. It. So, for the tuna hearts, I have a couple pounds, um, which if, if you use it like batarga, we're lightly grated on top of a pasta. Yep. Um, then it, it should last kind of quite a while. Yeah. Um, and uh, it could most likely be special. Those type of items probably wouldn't menu them uh, unless it turns out amazing and I can get a constant supply. Sure. Most of these small items, especially if they're foraged, you can't necessarily menu because you never know if you're going to get them or not. Right, absolutely. Uh, so currently, on one of our dishes on the menu, I use local forage mushrooms, and that's how I have on the menu because I don't know if it's going to be chicken of the woods, if it's going to be oysters, hen of the woods, shrimp at the loma, depending, yeah, yeah, depending yeah. on what it is. Yeah. Um, so it's like I just kind of leave it to where I can menu it because it's it definitely have local. It will have local. But yeah. I don't know what it will be. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's I, you know I, that's awesome, and I really I, I respect that you're really trying to use those items that are coming from around us, right? Because there are those things. Um, you mentioned in your pre-show questionnaire, I asked you to fill out that your big pet peeve is that, you know, when people put that something is, say, wild mushrooms on a menu and it's not, I had that experience recently. I was at a restaurant and it said, you know, the dish contained wild mushrooms. And I thought, oh, cool, I love wild mushrooms. I wonder what it is. And I got the dish and it was just cremineous. Yes, you know, that, the, that's Just like terrible. I could buy at the A&P. I mean, it's not any different. And, you know, unfortunately, it was not, you know, it was not a restaurant where I knew anybody. And it was, you know, but if I did, I would have said something. And, you know, they can put the word wild in front of it if they want because there's nobody checking up, right? Correct. That's, that's unfortunate. A lot, a lot of places will do that. And, and part of it might not, they might not even realize, depending on it. It might could be ignorance that they don't realize that 
all mushrooms are not wild. Sure. <laughs> um, so it could be part of that. So it might be a kind of a harmless meaning, but right. for us that kind of that enjoy the wild mushrooms, it is disappointing yeah. not to see that. Is there anything that came in like today into the kitchen that you're excited to work with? The king salmon, I just just being cut right this minute, uh, are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, these, these ones came from these are California king. They're massive. They're the big biggest ones we've got in so far um, this season, which is great because it's towards the end of the season. So, yep. um, uh, but they're, they're beautiful, gorgeous right now. And you live in Manhattan, right? Correct. Yeah, in Midtown East. Cool. Yeah. So you reverse, you commute out here to Jersey? And exactly. Then... <laughs> exactly. And I was, I, I, I took the train for the first week uh, I was here. Uh, and then my wife suggested, I was, on the weekends, it was about an hour and a half to get home. And, yeah. and my wife said, why don't you, why don't you try driving? Because we have a car in the city. Uh, unfortunately, we have a car in the city. So so I said, yeah, let me try it. And I, have, I haven't taken the train since. Um, it's half the time it's kind of I can listen to listen to the radio so having a car in the city is you know sometimes can be really great I mean because when you travel it off hours it can make things so much easier for my daughter's birthday we asked her what she wanted to eat for her birthday and she said that she want to have Mongolian hot pot because we sometimes go out to Flushing and I you know I was like I don't really want to schlep all the way out to Flushing and I remembered that there's a spot on Bowery we live in Brooklyn and you know it was seven o'clock and it took us 14 minutes to get there by car yes it would have taken us more than an hour on the train it would have taken us 40 minutes to drive to flushing and we drove right into manhattan and you know parking right in front because the parking had just gone from commercial to residential at seven o'clock parked right in front of the restaurant it took us 10 minutes to get home so it was totally (laughs) totally worth it but then you have the opposites when you think it'll take 14 (laughs) minutes and it it takes you two hours i mean that's you know that's just what we get right i have this sort of working theory that living in the city and living like people that live in the city and people who live in rural places actually are much more similar in the way they approach life than people who live in the suburbs because if you live in a rural place sometimes you don't know like what's going to happen and you're beholden to things like weather and you are beholden to things like you know if the power goes out stuff like that if you live in the city you're beholden to things like travel time and you just have to deal with it right Right. like if the subway is packed and late and there's an accident or there's an accident on the highway you just have to deal with it but I feel like if you people who live in the suburbs you know they want everything to be air conditioned and you go from your car into your garage and into your house and then you go into your car and you go to your you know you go to the movie theater like everything is controlled and so people I feel like have a much harder time dealing with change right but if you live in the city or you live in a rural place for sure I feel like we're pretty good at it yeah yeah (laughs) Um, what about events? I mean, this this restaurant's pretty big. We're sitting in Halifax right now. I assume you guys do a lot of events here. We do. Uh, we have that's what we're set up for right behind me, behind me now. Uh, we have we have parties actually every, every night this this week. Oh wow! Um, except for Saturday, we have events booked. Um, sometimes they're small. Tonight's a thirteen person small small corporate group. Um, last night was a, was a twenty five person group. The night before we had two groups. Um, we'll do full restaurant buyouts as well. Uh, so we have cor- corporate kind of buyouts or weddings. We did a wedding a couple months ago. Um, but we do quite a bit of events, especially in the back dining room uh, where cool. we're sitting now. Yeah. And then are you able to play a little bit more as a chef in those in those kind of things? Not as or? much with the events, yeah. uh, more so in the restaurant for sure. Got it. Uh, so the restaurants, we do, do specials kind of whenever, whenever we can get in. Yeah. Uh, we'll do specials. Um, and uh, But for more for events that kind of booked weeks weeks or months out, yeah. uh, set, set menus. Uh, but, yeah, we, we try to play in the kitchen a lot. Uh, to me, that's experimenting and playing with food is, is what keeps all the chefs and all the cooks kind of interested uh, if they're just cooking the same food every day for years on end they're, they're going to get bored so uh, <laughs> we're, we're trying to try to change things up and, and, and have some fun totally um, is there anywhere that you want to travel um, for, for culinary reasons like any place you haven't been that you're interested in checking for sure. out Japan's at the top of the list never been to Japan super fascinated with the culture the food. Uh, I mean, a lot of my 
cuisine is actually not a lot, I would say, but part part of my cuisine is influenced by Japanese cooking. Sure. I've never worked in a Japanese restaurant, um, but I have had, had worked with some chefs that have been Japanese trained. Yeah, um, and that's kind of where some of my 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 dishes kind of are influenced by. For example, the mushroom broth uh, on my sea bream dish, it's really a mushroom dashi. Right. Um, and it's, it's basically exactly what it is. Uh, don't call it a dashi on the menu just because we're not really a Japanese restaurant, yep. but that's basically what it is. Uh, and, and just, But I would love to travel there to kind of see it myself and kind of jump jump into the cuisine a little more. Well, and hearing, listening to you speak about your food and your influences, um, it's very similar, right? I mean, Nova Scotia is an island, mm-hmm. right? A lot of the food comes from the water. That's where you grew up, and it's sort of where you've come back to with your food here and with the sort of idea of it, and Japan's the same, right? I mean, so much of the food there, you know, I mean, they, they weren't really eating much in terms of land animals, you know, until, right. like, 19th century, really. Yeah. Um, it was all from the ocean. Yeah, their, their seaweed seaweed culture is amazing yeah. to me. <laughs> their seaweed game uh, is really whole, strong. They're all seafood, <laughs> but their seaweed uh, is just incredible to me, yeah. uh, with what they're doing with seafood. Yeah. Seaweed. Awesome. Um, any other things on the horizon for you? Like, do you see yourself opening more restaurants? Do you certainly, yeah. certainly, yeah. I mean, I have a few few ideas. I'd love to do kind of more of a, of a higher end, but more casual tasting menu type type uh, type menu where the items are changing. I think this, in my opinion, is probably most chefs' dream to have a small restaurant like sure. that. Um, sometimes it's not feasible. Uh, I would also like to do some couple casual concepts that I'm kind of working on. Um, Possibly in New Jersey, possibly in Brooklyn or yeah. Manhattan. We'll see. Yeah. Um, after spending all this time in the kitchen at work, do you cook at home? Not as much as I would like to. Not, <laughs> definitely not as much as my wife would like me to. <laughs> um, I, li- I live in Manhattan, so my, okay. my kitchen is not a, a massive kitchen, okay. quite small. Fortunately, I do have a kitchen, um, but it's uh, to cook in the kitchen is, as a chef, for me at least, I need to have my tools, I need to have enough space. It's kind of frustrating working in a kitchen at home that's just tiny and limited, and then you got to clean up after yourself. Right. So it's. Uh, <laughs> but we go out to eat quite a bit. Living in living in Manhattan, it's it's kind of you got a good excuse not to cook at home. It's true. You can kind of go yeah. wherever you want. Um, we go out to eat quite a, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, what's a, what's one great thing that you ate this week? This week, I would say the wag, wagyu tacos at Californos in uh, San Francisco. Just our my wife's anniversary was last week, ten uh, year anniversary, and. We went to Californos. She, was, she came with me to, to Timber Cove, and then we went for our anniversary dinner before flying back. Uh, but it was incredible. Awesome. Yeah, very good restaurant. Very cool. Well, thank you, Chef, so much for taking time out of your busy day to sit down with me and talk about all this stuff. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review the show. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. And remember, go to www.heritageradionetwork.org slash gala and get your tickets today. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.